0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I'm so honored to be joined by our guest, Broadway legend Karen Morrow. She first made a splash off-Broadway in Sing Muse, and appeared in the 1963 Boys from Syracuse, Alan J. Lerner's Music Music, and the songs of Jonathan Tunick, There. As one of Broadway's biggest leading ladies in the 1960s and 70s, she counts among her credits The Grass Harp, I Had a Ball, The Selling of the President, I'm Solomon, A Joyful Noise, and other musical theater favorites. She also replaced in The Mystery of Edwin Drude on Broadway and starred in The Most Happy Fella, Oklahoma, Brigadoon, Carnival, and more at City Center, oftentimes collaborating with the original creative teams. As a regular Kenley Players star, her Her credits include Kiss Me Kate, Anything Goes, and Can Can. On TV, she has graced shows like Tabitha, Murder, She Wrote, Ed Sullivan, Jim Neighbors, Mike Douglas, Merv Griffin, Red Skelton, David Frost, Good Heavens, Jimmy Dean, Love American Style, and more with her presence. So without further ado, here she is, the fabulous Karen Mara.
1: Updated enough, because when I do my Zooms with with my with my friends and the, the different organizations they all are so clever and they're much younger than I and they do fabulous things and they put mustaches on and hats and all that and I can't do that with mine. It makes me crazy. I'm in my house and my the guys next door are, uh, are my landlords. I mean I used to own a house but then I you know and he's also my musical director for my classes so we after my classes we gather in his backyard and have cocktails and dinner and stuff like that and I said I live so close to the ocean. <laughs> why don't Why don't I get in the car for God's sake and drive to the ocean and look at the sunset? Because I'm not far. I'm on that side of the hill, so it would take me maybe twenty minutes to get to the ocean from my house. And I don't do that. I don't do that. And then also it would take me maybe a, maybe another twenty five minutes to just go up. There's a There's a big hill opposite me where they take where the photographers uh, take the picture of L.A., downtown L.A., nestled against the mountains when the mountains are topped with snow. And you can just go up there, you had to pay $6, but you can just go up there and sit, and I don't do any of those things. As you can tell, I've had caffeine. So, <laughs> so anyway, okay, you're on, kid. What would you like to know?
0: Okay, so I want to start by asking you how you became interested in theater and, and performing.
1: Okay. Uh, my parents—I well, don't know if you read any of this—but my parents were both opera singers in Chicago, and they met uh, because they both had the same voice teacher. And then they went out and performed in a uh, in a circuit. It was like summer stock, called the Chautauqua Circuit, and they would go from tent to tent to tent all over the East Coast. Like one night there would be there would be a magician, and then the magician would would move on to the next town and and. Then, then the opera would come came in, but the, the crew was always ahead of them, changing the sets and all that stuff. So, so that's where they met, and they, uh, and then my dad did radio, and then my mom. When I was born, my mom quit. But there was, there was always opera music, opera music, opera music. So I got to the point where I went, eh, eh. I didn't want to hear any more opera, and I hated it. But my mom and I secretly liked Kate Smith, whom you don't know. Kate Smith, she was a big, heavy woman who had the perfect voice, straight up and down. I mean, today's belters couldn't hold a candle to her because not only could she go straight up and down, but she also had a wonderful quality. So that was it. Then, then I got interested. Well, I always sang. I always sang. As a three year old, I was giving concerts in the front, you know, in the living room for my parents' friends. And so, and people went, so I got applause. That was fine with me. Then when I got into grade school, I would sing for the class. And then when I got into high school, uh, I was the singer for a lot of things, for the mixers and stuff like that, and the choir. And then when I got into college, uh, I mean, it never occurred to me, I didn't even know what musical theater was. I was more interested in the pop the pop music, um, the Beatles of my day, which were, for me, the, the, the four freshmen and stuff like that, and, and Eddie Fisher and... I didn't even like Tony Bennett. Uh, I thought he—I thought his voice was too odd. But uh, then when I got into college, the boys' school, because I went to a Catholic girls' school with nuns, and the boys' school, somehow, the priest there who was in charge of theater, he was a real theater buff, but this is in Dubuque, Iowa, Dubuque, Iowa, and he somehow saw me do something at the girls college and asked me to do the comedy lead in brigadoon with him and the nuns said no 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 that's that's not ladylike. we want you to do a play the caucasian chalk circle and you're going to play the kleptomaniac and they said so, so they said you have a choice you can go over there and do the comedy part or you can do the kleptomaniac which i think would really be very more ladylike and they said you have a choice you you know let us know tomorrow and i said oh no i, I don't need tomorrow i'm going over to the boys school <laughs> so that was it and the choreographer at this boys school was eugene loring who, who was a uh, a choreographer for the new york ballet and for all the all the about ball- he he choreographed originally rodeo and in ballets like that and he had a school out here and a company that he traveled with around the United States to colleges and give lectures and then do a show. And so he choreographed the Brigadoon that I did and he choreographed then the next year, um, life upon the wicked stage. I just did that on the road. Um, Showboat. Thank you so much, sir. (laughs) That's how it happens when I'm as old as your great grandmother. So I just, that's when I discovered music theater. And I went, oh, and I was a hit? I mean, oh, oh, I was I a hit, ha! Ah. And my parents came and they went, oh, God Almighty, oh, please, God, no, God. And, and Jean talked to them afterwards and said, you've got somebody here, and I will give her a scholarship to my school in California. She will come, she will be the star, and I'll have the dancers around here, and we will tour the United States. After she graduates, you know that. Yes, yes. So I did a whole bunch of jobs in the summer. Went out, came out here. Went to the school. Said, "Mr. Loring, I'm here," and he said, "Who are you?" And I said, "I'm Karen Morrow. You gave me a scholarship in Dubuque. Oh, I don't remember that. But if you want to take lessons, I'll give you lessons for free. And I just." I was appalled and so sad and everything. This is a long long answer because of the coffee I've had. And so I, I went to Milwaukee where my college roommate was living. And they insisted that I go and audition for the for the local professional theater. And I did, and they went, Oh, geez, okay. And then I joined that group and then from then on that was it. And then I had learned I I, had, I did some shows with them in Milwaukee, which was all excerpts of, of musical theater. So I learned so much, and I learned so much about the music of musical theater. I had never heard it. I had never heard any of that. I was too busy listening to The Four Freshmen and uh, and Eddie Fisher. And I just fell in love with it. And I got to New York and I just, I mean, I got a show right away. So I was hooked. That's it, my own. Hooked. except I can't believe that I actually got a drummer and drove from Milwaukee to New York with with the drums in the back and the car rattling all the way. And then, oh my God, so that's it, honey. That's where it all started. It's a long answer to a very short question. What else?
0: So did you always have New York in mind as a place you wanted to go? And then what made you decide to finally go there?
1: Very good question. What made me finally decide to go there is that uh, people would come out from New York to guest star in the shows that I was doing at the local professional theater, and I was big show off and a braggart, and I mean, I just I was I had no confidence, enough, so I was always going. Blah, blah, blah. And I said, well, I'm going to go to New York. Yes, I think I'm going to go to New York. People tell me I should go to New York. And one of these girls went to New York. She said, oh, wait, well, we can be roommates. And I went, yes, fine, Lois. Oh, good, let's do that. Had no. She goes to New York, she gets an apartment and sends me a letter. I mean there was no time, you know no email then. Sends me a letter that says I have us an apartment and you owe me $45 so it's it's start renting next month. Oh. And I was uh, okay and her boyfriend was the drummer at the theater was so he and I drove to New York. So see. so that was that was how I got to New York. What was the next part of the question? The first part?
0: Oh, it was just going to be did you always know you wanted to move there? But no. I-
1: no because I was, you know, TV was born when I was a teenager and I watched the specials uh, when I got into college and all that, and I, I started, watching, and then I saw like, not Carol Burnett, uh, but earlier than that, but when, when, when music, musical specials were the big thing, the Andy Williams, and then I remember Mitzi Gaynor, oh my God, and, and Judy Garland and all those people and I just said, that's what I want. And I went to movies, movies, movies. Oh my God, I was crazy about Betty Hutton. I was crazy about those things. So I wanted to be a movie star or then, then, a tel- then a television star when television came in. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to sing in front of a camera and wear fabulous gowns and eyelashes. And I would be so thin and beautiful. That's what I really wanted to do so broadly was something I never even heard of, never heard of. So, that was it.
0: So, were you able to um, see any theater where you were growing up in Dubuque or?
1: No. No, my dad took me once to a ballet. And the music was really odd. It was wonderfully odd. And these people didn't really have costumes on. They had, I mean, it was a professional company that came through town. And they had like leotards on. They were different colored leotards and stuff. And they were doing modern dance. And I just... That, between that and the music, I was so taken by, so I immediately started taking dance lessons. And I thought that I was gonna, I was gonna become a dance star. I mean, I couldn't dance, but I could show off. I was really good. And I would go around. In fact, it was the same dance school that Cloris Leachman went to. Cloris was from, was from we talked about it, Cloris and I did. And uh, in fact, when she got her Academy Award, she thanked Rose Lorenz, the dance teacher, for for all those years way back when, and I went, Rosalind, that's my dance teacher. Oh my God, I was so excited. So that's all. I never I never saw a musical. No, no, I didn't hear I didn't hear records of musicals until I got into college. Oh, so I really didn't understand any of that. I didn't know any of the stars there at that point. Um, we didn't have television, you know, back in the forties. So the pop songs were from Broadway. have yeah. well, the Gershwins wrote and and even Frank Lesser and people like that, or from the movies. Those were those were the only time we heard pop songs. But now of course there's a whole field called pop songs. You know, different branches of pop songs. So but then that was that's all I knew.
0: So I, what 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 were some of your favorite cast albums once you did start listening to them?
1: Well I loved Most Happy Fella because when I was in college, I had this voice. You've heard my voice on recording? Yes, so yes, A big sound. It's a real Broadway sound. Well, when I was in college, nobody had that sound. And so I didn't know where I belonged. I joined the choir. I was in a trio. I sang pop songs, get at, at, at mixers and stuff like that. And uh, my roommate would play uh, pop versions of some shows. And... One day, uh, we were doing. We we're all supposed to do for our for an exam in our acting class, uh, a song, an interpretive song. And so I don't know what I did. It had to be you. I did something popular. And then on came this funny looking girl, my classmate Charla Eilig was her name. And Charla was really funny looking, and she did. She lip synced. She lip synced because she couldn't sing. She lip synced to Susan Johnson, singing. Ooh, my feet from the most happy fellow. Ooh, my feet, my poor, poor feet. And I was, that's my voice. Oh, my voice. That's my oh, voice. Yeah. That's, my voice. That's, that's how I sing. Oh, my gosh. There's a place where I can go. That's how I sing. Oh, oh. So that was, when I first realized that, that I, 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 was, I was different and that, that I was legitimate. There was a legitimate place for that sound. So and then I finally met Susan, and I just cried. She knew she knew that I I gave her credit for my career, and she walked in the room, and I started to cry. I, I cried for a whole week when we worked together, and then I mean and then she gave anyway. We became pals, and I just you know it just that was it. So, okay next. <laughs>
0: so I so I want to ask you what it was like also for you to do the most happy fella at City Center, in
1: oh i loved i loved all those things i did at city center i loved it first of all when i did when i did brigadoon no oh, oklahoma oh yeah mr rogers was still alive and uh, he chose me whenever he chose me to do those things and that was the 25th anniversary of oklahoma and john davidson and i susie watson dick france but john i fell madly in love with john oh my god can you imagine well, of course you you won't even but he was so cute and he cute. was brand and he was brand new and he got ah and he was so good and he sang so well. And of course i was sexy 80 annie so we kind of dated for a minute oh. and uh, so that was great then i mean i did i think i did five shows there the ha- most happy fella i loved again because frank Lesser was still alive, and uh, and he was not really the director, but he was the director. Yeah. So, yeah, so he, and he, he loved women who could belt higher and higher and higher. When I auditioned for him for that, uh, he said, okay, we did a big D, my, oh, yes. So he said, okay, raise it a little bit. Big D, my, oh, yes. No, raise a little bit. Big D, my, oh, yes. It just got higher and higher, and he was said, yeah, that's great, Karen. So he hired me. So it was, God, it, was, it were wonderful, wonderful people in that. And uh, it was beautifully directed and beautifully produced. And it was a hit. I mean, the only, the only hits I ever had were at City Center. And, uh, and, that, and I did Carnival there, which was fun. They were all fun in New York because I didn't have to worry about a long run. Yeah. I guess we were reviewed. I guess we were reviewed. But I didn't think about that because I knew we were gonna run, we weren't gonna close. So, but I lo- I loved, I'm trying to think Oklahoma. Oh, look, there was the guy that played my father. I wish I could remember their names because they were all pros. They were pros. Mm. They weren't movie stars that came in to do a part and kind of louse things up a bit. I did plenty of those out in summer stock <laughs> with stars that were on their way down and were, you know, being angry and stuff like that. I won't say who, but you know, they would drink a lot and stuff like that. So, so I loved it. I love City Center. Anything at City Center, I loved.
0: So I do want to go back in time a little bit to when you first moved to New York and ask you about how you sort of started to audition and then when you got Sing Muse, which I think was one of the first things you did.
1: Driving me crazy, you know. Doesn't this happen? I suppose I should look at the camera. Doesn't this happen when you interview people, they just love to talk about themselves? They just love it. (laughs) Well, I'm no different. Went to my five-floor walk up to my little roommate who was only four foot 10. At that point, I was five seven and weighed considerably more than she did. Uh, And the next day I saw in the paper, in the New York Times, when I got to the apartment, that the next day, or maybe I'd found that out before I left Milwaukee. There was an audition for subways are for sleeping. Oh. And so I had my audition dress, my audition shoes. I had it all planned, and it was all beige. I had a beige dress, beige legs, beige shoes, because someone told me if you wear beige skin colored shoes, your legs would look longer and prettier. And the beige hair and everything. And they brought you in 10 at a time. You probably know about that. 10 people at a time, you come in, they go, you stay, you stay, you out. And I've stood there ready to sing my song. And they went, you out. I went, what? What? (laughs) That was the day after. Then I kept auditioning, auditioning. And see, that was in September, I think. And yes, and a month later, uh, a month later i went to an audition somewhere and there was a guy who came to uh to play for somebody else and it was in a theater and i did my audition song which was perfect relationship from bells are ringing i did my audition song and that was it you know the way i sing and then i went out and, the, and the, 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 this girl's accompanist came in from me he said he said I, I, come with me i have to go downtown we have a new show going on off-broadway and our leading lady just quit to go on the road oh you okay and the leading lady, her, their leading lady was joanne worley oh. so so she left and i went down there and i sang to this guy's apartment down in the village and went it's crazy and he said uh he said you got the job and i said oh oh wonderful wonderful talk 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 i said where is the subway stopping and he just gave me five dollars and he said here oh, take the subway, take the cab, you're going to be a star. And I went, oh, now, that was so funny. And then that was it. I did I did sing Muse and just loved every minute. But of course, that was my first experience with a flop. But I, I did well. I got very good reviews. And I also got a lot of agents pursuing me, which was wonderful. And I signed with the William Morris office and uh, uh, then. And then that was it. Then, you know, one thing led to another. Joanne Worley had gone out and she laughs to this day, she says, I have I have nightmares. She she went out with Carnival oh. understudying, um, she didn't go on, she was understudying Kay Ballard. And she said, to this day, I have nightmares of me walking down the street, threadbare, walking down the streets of New York and a, and a newspaper blows up against my leg. And it's the review, Karen Morrow, star because of Sing News. (laughs) I said, Joanne, I don't think you have to worry about any of that happening. You're, you know, you're bigger than anybody right now. So, so that was that was my first job, and then I never, I would maybe not work for about six months or so, and my my business managers would get worried, but something would always come up. So, what else?
0: So you had a sense
1: during Sing News that you were becoming a star. Yes! Yes, because I got I got the Theatre World Award, but by that time, I went out right away as Tammy Grimes' standby in The Unsinkable Molly Brown. Not her understudy, her standby. I had my own dressing room, all my own costumes. And that, the agents took me out of New York in order for me to make money, which was fine. Uh, but had I stayed in New York... I maybe would have got something else. Yeah. But I wouldn't have gotten, I wouldn't have had, I mean, financial security, listen, as her standby, I got $400 a week. This is back in 1961. And when I went on for her, because I took over the the company for three weeks, I got $900 a week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So that kind of padded my, my checking account and everything. And then I could go from there. And I was up for a thousand things after that. And you know, got nothing but flops, but did television in between. I was very lucky. So I thought, that's it. With <laughs> makeup and hair and I'm wearing pretty gowns and things like that. So, but I didn't wear pretty gowns. They didn't, you know, the Gary Moore show and things like that. I had to look like the girl next door. So that was it.
0: So I do want to ask you um about Sing Muse. What was the reason that you think it was pretty short-lived in
1: it? Good, uh, good. Aren't you smart? Jesus, you're smart, Charles. Um, Thank you. Um, It was very intellectual. And uh, because Eric Siegel, who wrote it, uh, was, was it Harvard or Yale? I think it was Harvard. Because I know eventually he went to Yale uh, to teach. He gave the valedictorian address in ancient Greek. <laughs> so he was a Greek scholar. I mean, he really was a Greek scholar. He was great. He was a great guy. He used to come and stay with me in New York because I lived right next door to Riverside Park on 79th Street. And uh, he was a runner. He was a, he was he was just loaded with energy and so bright and so just a darling guy. But I think it was just too intelligent. It was so clever. It was so clever, but I didn't know. I didn't know who Menelaus was. I didn't know who any of the. I knew the name Achilles, but it was it was all a takeoff on them, put in modern times or and in, in hood times. I mean, Achilles was a was a he was a dumb boxer, and then he had the manager, and then who had the big cigar, and uh, all men, all men. So they were, and they were very protective of me because I had just gotten there, and I remember I remember. <laughs> I remember, maybe you're too young to hear this, but I remember going on the subway all the way downtown. And I guess some bum exposed himself to me, but I didn't know that that's what he was doing. <laughs> I didn't know. So I went back and I said, guys, you know, there was this guy in front of me on, on the subway. And I told them what he did and they went, oh, okay, well, Karen, uh, here's how you take the subway again. I, mean, I was just so stupid. Stupid. Really, really I wasn't that young, but I was a Catholic girl, Catholic school girl. So, you know, I was I was twenty three, something like that. So which is that these days that would that of twenty three we would be married and have seven children by now, but, but yeah. then. So but so, I
0: also want to ask you um what you remember about being very much part of the era that off Broadway was sort of coming to prominence first. Yeah.
1: Yes. There were a lot of us off Broadway who, who were, I mean, I'm thinking Dom DeLuise, Charles Nelson Riley, Joanne, no. Marjorie uh, Gray, who eventually married Sheldon Harnick. Oh. Um, uh, I'm trying to think of who else, who else were the, the ones then that they were doing all these little kind of archerad, all these interesting little little uh, things that were really fun and wonderful. And uh, uh, everybody, you know, an intellectual in some way, they weren't just, Wacka 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 comedies with the dancing, so everybody kind of got their start at that time, and then, and then filtered filtered out. I don't. Know, can you think of anybody I'm missing when it comes to the off Broadway scene?
0: Um, uh, maybe Rita Gardner.
1: Rita, of course, duh, <laughs> of course the Fantastics. Yes, yes, of course. Oh, she just. These are dream people. These yeah. are dream people. They weren't. They were ambitious enough to get careers, but I mean, they weren't They weren't after each other. The competition was, I don't remember feeling, I felt competitive because I was up for, not then, but later on on Broadway. I was up for a lot of roles, a lot of roles with a lot of other people. And I always knew that's, that that person was better for the role than I, I always knew. And <clears throat> I'm trying to think, even, when Paula, the Paula Wayne who, who starred opposite Sammy Davis Jr. at the same time, I was with Buddy Hackett. I really would have preferred her role, but, <laughs> but she was much prettier. You know, she was much daintier, and, and which which would have registered better. Was small registered better with Sammy. She was more sexy. I was just. I was the girl next door, so I was right for I Had a Ball. At the same time, I was asked to do Kelly. And I had my choice between Kelly and I Had a Ball. And Kelly was was so touted as the next great musical. And no one ever heard of I Had a Ball. So my agents, one agent at the Morris office said Kelly, and the other one said, I Had a Ball. Think about it. And I did, and I thought, I Had a Ball has nowhere to go but up. Kelly has nowhere to go but down. And sure enough, it closed in one night. So, and, and even though we got terrible reviews, we ran for six months, so. So, so
0: I want to ask you about actually another show you did off-Broadway, which is Boys from Syracuse. So, uh, um, ask, um, what do you think it was about that production that made it sort of the definitive one for a lot of people?
1: Well, it was directed by Christopher Hewitt, who was British, and I think he had that kind of, I, th- I think he was probably more tasteful in some ways than if an American had done it where it would have been more slapstick. We did plenty of slapstick. I remember jumping up into the arms of one of the Dromios, and never, never straight, never bending my legs to come back down. I just went straight up there and came straight down on my back and they all went, that was my choice. And they went, how come you're not dead of a broken back? I said, I don't know. Cause I just threw myself into it, but there was no, there was no whack a whack a whack a whack a going on in there. It just was written very it had good people the time he directed very well. Mr. Rogers was there all the time. Oh. Uh, and it really was a hit and I I remember opening night uh, we you know we had a party afterwards and the next day the reviews were just sensational. And I really cried. I just went, "Oh, I get it." Because I thought that Mr. Rogers had bribed the critics, it didn't occur to me that I would be in a hit. It never occurred to me that I would. We bribed them. We really are a hit. <laughs> and then, of course, we had celebrities come. I even have, on the piano, I have an autograph from um, Shearing, George Shearing. Oh, he had a quartet, very popular, very popular, blind, but he came and I and. He came up you know, to meet everybody, shook hands. And I said, I said, I'd love to have your autograph, Mr. Shearing. I've been a fan for so long. And I said, but he went, oh, I'll give you one. I went, really? So he took out a little machine like this, this big, and he opened it up. And he took a, a card, uh, an index card, put it in there, smashed down on it, gave it to me. That was the the the, the Braille alphabet. And then he then he put another card in there. And went. Took it out and gave it to me. And I went, Oh my God, oh my God. I have it, as I said, I have it in an envelope on the piano. He said, and, and I so I went home and of course immediately tried to figure it out. I'm feeling the you know the A, B, C, D, of like that. And you remember one of the songs from Boys from Syracuse was What Can You Do with a Man? Oh yes. You, and he wrote, Dear Karen, I'm sure you know what to do with a man. George. Isn't that something? Yeah. So we had all sorts of people, but I thought, I thought, I can't be in a hit. Am I in a hit? Do they like me? Oh my God, okay. And uh, But I, I, the Morris songs had made commitments with me, again, to take me out of town and make money to do summer stock, which was fine because that started me on the next 30 years of summer stock and, and being very well paid for that. Yeah. And I don't know what would have happened if I had stayed in New York, but probably would have gone to the poor house because <laughs> <laughs> there wasn't that much work. But I was, because I had that big stage voice and, and the big face and the big personality, I got to play all the big, big stock theaters in St. Louis, you know, 14,000 people. Kansas City, 12,000 people and stuff like that. So.
0: So I do want to ask you if you have any specific memories of Richard Rogers from Oklahoma or the boys in Syracuse or
1: something else? Yeah, uh, I remember auditioning for him. I mean, he saw me, he saw me do Sing News. But I remember the the big meeting I remember was was Doris Day's manager and Mr. Rogers. And I went to Mr. Rogers and I remember just, I, I don't remember anything he said because it was Richard Rogers. and I was, and I didn't know how to dress. I mean, I was so, such a bumpkin, and then, subsequently, when I got, he asked me to, well, the, first of all, the thing that Doris Day's manager said to me was, who are you, Karen Morrow, and I went, well, I don't know, I, I, I'm just a girl from Iowa. He said, Doris Day always knew who she was, and I went, okay, that's the end of this interview. So... So Mr. Rogers then asked me to audition for Boys from Syracuse. So I immediately lost weight. I just went, okay. Now I wasn't fat, but I was substantial. So I must have lost 20 pounds. I was really thin and I loved the way I looked. Had I done television before? I don't know, but I remember being really thin on the Jimmy Dean show. Okay. So anyway, um, I, they cast me, they cast me and, and I was so thin. So they went to the costume and they went loose. The part of loose is supposed to be fat. She's supposed to be fat. I said, what? I just lost 20 pounds. So they padded me with foam rubber, foam rubber boobs, foam rubber hips. But, but I still had this tiny waist, so this big foam rubber, and of course I got thinner because I would sweat because the foam rubber was was it like like wearing a sweatsuit, and I was just dripping, dripping underneath it. I had to take a shower at the theater every night, you know, because it was just awful. So I mean, when he said you're too thin, I went, uh, and then I don't well, the thing when I did Oklahoma, I have a tendency to make a song kind. More so now than then, my own. Yeah. It ain't so much a question. So I was just, those talk singing, it ain't so much a question of not knowing what to do. I've known what's right and wrong since I've been 10. And he just said, no, that's a dotted quarter. And then that's a quarter note. So it had to be, it ain't so much a question. I wasn't allowed. He didn't want anybody to sing off the beat no back phrasing, no nothing, nobody. It had to be right on the beat. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I obeyed him. So that, he was just awfully lovely. And I'd heard stories about how he flirted with, he did like blondes and he did flirt with blondes. I don't think he ever did anything, but he flirted with the blondes because all of us blondes got together about 10 years ago, seven years ago and did a concert here. All of us richard roger blondes uh, plus a few redheads and you know they they were flirted with quite profusely and i said not me i was you know i was a comedian and he always dressed in a suit tie always stupid me i didn't get a picture taken with him or anything I, i i took no pictures of me and celebrities all my life which i really regret uh but that's that's what I remember of him. Did you ask me about Frank Lesser or just Richard Rodgers?
0: Oh, well, I would love to know about Frank Lesser, too.
1: Okay. Frank, as I call him, because after... Uh, he was wonderful. He just... I couldn't do any wrong for him. He loved the big day. I mean, he just was so thrilled with that sound and the guy who was playing Herman. And he he, he just thought we were great. Uh, then he thought I was so great that he decided to be my manager. Oh. I went, What? He and the other two fellas, Whitehead, can't remember the second guy, uh, in their office, it was Frank Publishing, was the name of their organization. And he said, We're going to be your managers. Is that OK? I went, Yeah, well, I got an agent. They said, No, no, we're going to be your managers. That's different. So they tried to sell me. <laughs> to any musical that was coming up, the one that really made me laugh was the one about, about Zapata. It was called Viva Zapata. <laughs> and they wanted me to play a fiery, ah, Senorita, senorita, something or other. And I would sing that in Spanish. I'm thought, i so Midwestern. What the heck are you thinking of, Frank? And I I think the choreographer, or the director, somebody just said, no, this is impossible. She can't do that. Then they put me up for something else because they liked me. They thought I could do anything and I couldn't. I couldn't. So, but then, years later, he did another show off-Broadway. It was at City Center called Music Music. He produced that and we got reacquainted again and I had some good songs and it was not a hit. It closed. Then right after that, I went to London to do a TV thing called song by song. It was in the same format as side by side by Sondheim. But they would do song by song by and I did Heart. So I did Rogers and Heart first and then and then went to London again and did Song by Song by Cole Porter. But Alan's wife was Liz Robertson at that time. And she was in the in the special with me. And so he came over because he knew I was going to be it and to be you to know, kind of hang out. And thank God, because he went with us for all our costume fittings, and he just went, no, Karen can't wear that, uh-uh, uh-uh, she had, you know, so, so th- we just kind of hung out for a while, and, and, and I'm, I, I'm so honored, but did I get a picture with him? No, <laughs> I get a picture of Richard Rogers? No, or any of those other people, so that was, that was, uh, Frank, I really, I, I think, but aside from all that, I think he is, was one of the most gifted uh, theater writers, but even, but to this day, I do one of his, one of his ballads in, in my act, whenever I do an act called, What Are You Doing New Year's? And it was written for a movie, but it's just the words, a combination of the words and music. And I think Most Happy Fella" is just one of the greatest things that was ever written, ever, ever. I, have, I had students when I was doing my master classes for <clears throat> indeed high school and college people, <clears throat> it shocked me at how few knew who Richard Rogers was. And because nobody knew who Frank Lesser was they called him Frank Loser. And I went, No, it's Frank Lesser. And they they just didn't know. And I said, come on. come on. This is your background. I mean this you have to know this. I said if for no other reason you can impress the people you're auditioning for when you talk about them. I mean, that's it, interesting. What are your what do your chums think about all this thing? Do they interesting, well, who do
0: they like? Um, well, I guess the ones that do like theater like a little more modern things, I guess, like, of course they like Hamilton and um some of them like something rotten, which I also liked.
1: Oh, I do too. <laughs> well, I mean, that's clever. It's yeah. very clever. Anything that's clever and funny, I think it was something rotten where my my best friend and I went to a matinee and we just we were on the floor laughing so hard. Mm-hmm. That that and oh. Well, did you like, uh, gentlemen, uh, a gentleman's guide to love and murder? Oh, I,
0: I didn't get to see that. Oh. I wish I had.
1: Was oh my god! If it ever comes around in a first grade, in a first grade production, because the graphics are half of the thing. I mean, the graphics that they came up with were how all these how these eight people got killed. A scream. I mean, I went to see it twice with two different sets of people, and again, laughing so hard all the time. It's it is it is the epitome of clever and and slightly intellectual. I mean, it's not speaking down to anybody. It's not going. Yeah. So okay. Well, no. Now listen. So uh, I know I'll just give you a rest from me for a minute. Um, what do you want to do with all this? What do you want to do with this knowledge of yours?
0: Well, I don't know quite yet. I've always wanted to be a director. So, maybe uh-huh. I'll be able to uh-huh. do
1: that someday. Yes, you will. Yes, I have, to, I have to write down your name in great big letters and put it in my book <laughs> so that after I die and you are a great director, people will go through my memoirs. Like, I'm assuming someone's going to go through my memoirs, but some, but some are going to say, She knew him? Oh my God. Oh my God. How is that possible? I, she was so much older. Oboe, oh, well, I
0: would love to know about Frank Lesser, too. Older.
1: Well, you will then. Are you going to go on to college after well high school? After high school, are you going to go on to college?
0: Yes, yes, I will. I don't, I don't know where yet. I haven't really thought about it. But maybe, maybe NYU. That's right near where we are. Or
1: Yeah, I've always just dis- discouraged. Uh, of course, you live in New York, so because you, so you've experienced the New York life. When I had students, high school students who wanted to be in theater so desperately, they all wanted to go to NYU, and I said, you know what? I said you're going to be distracted by the city. I said you're going to want to go to all the shows, which is fine. I said, but I would I would suggest you know Michigan or Carnegie Mellon or one of those where you could, just, you could just concentrate on that, and then you could go to New York and see everything all at once, and then come yeah. back. But you know the city, so you'll you won't be distracted by it, and yeah. you'll have it at your fingertips. Very oh good. Like, I have. do you have sisters and brothers?
0: No, I'm an only child.
1: So am I. That's why. <laughs> that's why we we have big personalities that's why yeah. <laughs> that's why you're that well that's great but this is great well so I'd
0: was, love to know about sort of singing on tv with Jimmy Dean and Gary Moore and Red Skelton and all of the rest
1: Red Skelton was my first uh and that was like 1961 I, I, I they they booked me when I was on the road with Molly Brown. That's the Moya Morris office. Oh, she's a newcomer. Blah 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 blah. And so, I would. Be, but listen, I didn't know what to do with the lyric. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I just had this big sound, and I was blonde, and that's all I knew how to do was sing big. That's what got attention. Uh, he was. He never spoke to me. There was no um there was no communication between us i was just this kid who came on uh and and when it was it was broadcast because at that time there would be one t- one time we taped it in the afternoon that was they called that the dress and then if there are any corrections to be made we would do that and then at night it was live so between the dress or during that time those two days there was uh, an international Incident, and I don't think it was, I don't know if it was the Bay of Pigs, or if it was one of those things. But nobody knew that night, during during eight o'clock at night, whether we were going to go to war or not. So, so the local news people would constantly interrupt the show. And I had people all over the United States watching me on my debut, mm-hmm. and I'm watching in, in my, I didn't have a TV and I watched at somebody else's house, and we're watching and, and they keep coming in with the news things oh. and I went okay, but it did get to me singing. And that was okay. And, they, and things things kind of happened because of that. I mean, I still was this new blonde and I was kind of hot. I don't think anybody cared oh. whether I I mean they could, they cared that I could carry a tune, but I don't but because I was the new one with the big voice, they they kept booking mm-hmm. me. And Gary Moore, which I had watched when I was in high school and everything in college. College, I didn't watch much TV. I would go home during college. Um, Carol Burnett was the big breakthrough star of that. And of course people said, oh, you could be funny like that. And I went, oh yeah. yeah. And <laughs> because I made faces and uh, you have to have more inside than just making faces. I didn't realize that until I got on the show. And fortunately, I mean, the musical director thought I was just swell because I had this voice and the choreographer was a friend of mine that had been my, my little roommate, you know, who brought me to New York, her dance partner. And so he kind of did things. me, And I was booked there twice. They were looking for a replacement for Carol. They didn't put me in any sketches. Uh, so there I was just singing songs, uh, with zoo animals and things like that. But the one incident i'll never forget was after one of them the guest star the other guest star was nat king cole do you know who that is of course you do okay african-american magnificent Uh, he made me swoon every time he sang i couldn't care what color he was or how old i I mean just that mellow gorgeous and there he was we were the both two of us guest stars on the same gary moore i thought i've arrived i'm famous so at the end of Gary's show, I don't know if you've seen any of them, but all the guests would line up in front with cur- der- 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 Kirby derby, uh, and Gary and the regulars, and we would hold hands and say, "Thanks for dropping by. Hope to see you soon. Goodbye." It was the, the kiss-off song in each episode. There I was holding Nat King Cole's hand. I'm holding Nat King Cole's hand. Nat King Cole is holding my hand. Yeah. Well, they got such hate mail, oh. hate mail about how dare that black man, and then worse words than that, with that lovely blonde, how dare you? Oh. Oh, I, when I was told that, I was just shocked because I wasn't prejudiced about anything. I didn't know very many black people when I was growing up, but certainly when I moved to New York, there were plenty of them and, and I worked with them and stuff, like that. but here was Nat Cole, how dare you do that? So that was my episode with Gary. They did not hire me. They got Dorothy Loudon then to, to uh, replace Carol. She only got two shots at it. I'm trying to think one other person may have been Marilyn. Uh, oh God, Peter Mans's wife. I forgot what her maiden name was. Uh, was a great singer, great singer. But I don't think they ever really Maybe they replaced her, I don't know, but I went on to other things. So then, Jimmy Dean, I got a contract with Jimmy Dean. Because it was the same musical people from Gary Moore who thought I was swell. And brought me on board. And Jimmy liked me. The producers and director of that show were very sophisticated. They had done like Barbra Streisand's first specials and stuff like that. And... People are going to be listening. They're going to go, "No, Karen, you're wrong." I I admit that. Yeah, that's a long time ago. But uh, so I went on and did sketches and stuff. And we were. It was kind of sophisticated humor. We dressed sophisticatedly, and his songs were done with with strings. I mean, it was photographed with with uh, a big string orchestra and everything, and Jimmy just kind of floating around, and me singing. Of an interesting song and the sketches I was dressed lovely and everything. So we did, it, it took weeks, and we did the uh dress rehearsal in the afternoon, filmed that, went into our dressing rooms for the notes, and Giulio de Benedetto, the executive producer, came in and said, Karen, I have to let you go. I went, oh. What? He let uh, everybody go with a couple of exceptions jimmy was so uncomfortable in that jimmy is a was a country western down home boy from the south all this sophistication meant nothing to him only tied him up in knots and they got people who happen to be in town or people who are in washington from between the dress and the air they got roy clark molly b uh, I'm trying to think who else they got up, and some of Jimmy's own band guys, and they totally reworked the show. So when it went on live, that was another where all my friends went, "What the hell?" And I remember coming home that night, and when I got home, there was a plane ticket for me with a hotel reservation to the Virgin Islands. My cleaning lady, oh, she wasn't my cleaning lady; she was kind of my assistant saw that and knew I, I would want to get out of town because i'd be getting a lot of phone calls and a lot of stuff so she and she helped me pack my things and the next day i went off to the caribbean to the virgin islands and came back so that was i thought that was going to be the end of my tv career but toward the end of the year the jimmy dean year molly b or somebody got sick molly B got sick I think she continued with the show. And they went, Oh my God, what are we going to do? But I was under contract with them. So I couldn't take any shows out here. I couldn't take any series. I could maybe do a guest shop, but I couldn't take any series or anything out here. I couldn't audition. And so they, so I remember Peter Matz said, You've got somebody under contract, for Christ's sake. Call her. Bring her in here. She can do things very fast. She can learn. She can do it fast. So they called me. And he said, You're paying her. So bring her in. So I did, as long as he needs me. Of course, with this big mouth and the camera photographing my mouth. Uh, and that was Jimmy Dean. That was the end of that. He was lovely, and he had me on his talk show later on and stuff like that. So we were we were chumps. It was good.
0: Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask you next about I had a ball. So, um, what was it like to be working with Buddy Hackett? Is my first question. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what do you think it was like? How how would you experience working with Buddy Hackett? Yes. What would you think? Was it difficult to work with him, or difficult? No, it was you know because I knew I knew what he was up to, and he did. He meant no harm. He meant no harm. He just he didn't like the discipline kind of, and he would change the lines. But the, the show wasn't that great. I I loved the score. I thought the score was pretty good uh but bottom line bottom line uh we got terrible reviews we got seven colossal bad reviews there were seven newspapers in new york at that time all bad and he came back and did eight shows a week for six months and he would do his act at the end of the show so people of course would stay you know, they were paying we had full houses they would come to see him do his act, and whoever was on Broadway at the time, I think Sammy was on Broadway at that time, Steve Lawrence, uh, who else? They would come after their show and watch the act. Or sometimes they would come earlier before their show was over and appear in the last scene with me. They, they would they would switch places with Richard Kiley because we had to go through like a tunnel of love. We'd go into something and they couldn't see us, then we'd come out at the other end, you know, and then there would be a surprise, me and Richard Kiley. But they, they would go around like that, and then they'd come out and I would feel it. We were going around backstage in the dark, something shifting. And I'd go, who's who's sitting next to me? And we come into the spotlight and I'd go, oh, hi, Sammy. <laughs> so the audience had great fun oh. and the the songs. I loved singing the songs, but again, I wasn't an actress. So I just opened my mouth and sang as loud as I could. Oh, oh he used to fool around with me on stage. I mean, he'd tease me on stage. He would come out right before my ballad. A big ballad, and he would come out, and he'd say, "Genie, Genie, I'm so sorry," and he would have tears planted on his cheek, big red tears. The audience couldn't see it, but he could. So I'm looking at these big tears, and now I have to sing this ballad. And then one time he came out before I was singing. He would do anything to, to sabotage that ballad. He came out with a salami behind his back, <laughs> and he said to the audience, "Listen." He said, "Care doesn't know this, but I got a salami tucked in my back. She won't see it when she's facing me. He said, so here she comes. And I'd come out on stage, oh, Garside, And he'd go, yes. And then he'd point to his back and the audience would laugh. And I thought, what the hell are they laughing at? And then of course, you know, he would do that, which after a while, it wasn't annoying. It just was, okay, well, the critics weren't too crazy about me anyway. So, you know, it's not spoiling my time. I'm still getting paid. But so finally, six months later, He came to work in a wheelchair with his leg up in a cast for a matinee. And we all went, buddy, what happened? He said, I fell last night and had a, uh, we still doubt to this day if he did, but he was tired. We ran strictly because of him doing his shtick for the two hours in the play. And then another half hour after the show.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and I mean, he really did his part to keep that going. We were so grateful to him. But we closed right before this summer, which means none of us had booked summer stock or anything. Mm -hmm. Although there were a lot of little specials that I did uh, on TV and stuff. But uh, so I'm I'm forever grateful to him for Mm -hmm. that. And I I did a nightclub act with him. We traveled. That was (laughs) (laughs) that was something because the two of us were kind of had to hang out, but he had a lot of friends all over the place and we would, you know, have dinner with friends and stuff. And I had to open the show and nobody cared at all what I had to sing, oh. nothing. And I was doing all the Barbra and hits. And I mean, I didn't have a mind of my own at that point. I just was blonde and opened my mouth and sang. So it was, I said I was comatose till I was 47. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else, honey?
0: Oh, I want to ask also about um, Anna White and Lloyd Richards, who were directing choreography.
1: Yes, Clark. yes. Uh, did you watch my tribute to Anna White on on YouTube by any chance at at her hmm. at her memorial? Oh no, I I haven't seen. But it? It's 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 kind of funny. Uh, anyway, Lloyd Richards, I didn't know he was from. He was famous in the African American community for his work. I want to say it one of the prestigious. Theaters. I don't know anyway they, they booked him because they thought it'd be great because we had several African Americans because it was about Coney Island yeah. and he wasn't I didn't find him easy to talk to or I mean I really needed guidance I really needed someone to say get off it, Karen yeah. and let's let's have a human being here or to give me any kind of help but at that time the, the singers were all in one room and the actors were in another room and and then and then then we would get together and somehow magically work as one. But the African-Americans complained about him. And I don't know what that was about. I don't know. I I don't know what, what standards they had at that time, except they wanted equal treatment. They wanted good treatment. We all wanted good treatment. Yeah. So I tattletale, I didn't mean to, but I did the Morris office called me and said, how are you doing? And I said, well, I said, I think we're okay. I said, but Lloyd Richards, I said, he seems to be, he's tough. I said, and the the black people, I said black then, the black people don't seem to like him very much. I don't know what's going on. Now, listen, I'm a dufo. I'm an absolute untried true doofo. And he was gone the next day. Oh. So I feel responsible for that. But then found out that they had also complained to their agents and stuff like that. So then they brought in, John Allen, lovely man. He he didn't he tried to help me. He was so kind to me and tried to help me, but I, I just wasn't I wasn't experienced enough to go and I wasn't courageous enough to brave what he asked me to do. Oh, Anna! Oh yeah. Well, she was scary. Uh, because she said <laughs> Of course, you know, she didn't do any, she, she, she choreographed me in one of the, in the big number that you see on TV, the eye had a ball mm-hmm. and all I had to do was stand in the center and walk a couple of places and kick and then walk another. So I watched her and her assistant, Tommy Panko, who was a doll and he would work with me, but Anna would sit in the back of the theater and she'd whisper in Tommy's ear and then he'd run up the aisle and tell us so. So I never really, but Luba Lisa, the, this star, the other star, was she was my roommate on the road. My style my, my, my dressing roommate. And she was darling. But of course she was cute and adorable and I thought, oh she's cute and adorable. Let's <laughs> get but she was a nice girl. And she was I saw you know, moderately talented. She was a great dancer. She wasn't a great singer, but she was cute. She was and she talked kind of like you know she kinda of had a little girly talk. But Anna was having no luck getting choreographing her at all. She just couldn't do the steps or something. And she would come in. into, I don't know. So Anna one time came storming into our dressing room with a pad of paper and a pencil and plunked it down in front of Luba and said, here, write down what you can do and left the room. Okay. So Luba didn't take that as an admonition. Anyway, so she looked at me. She says, Carey, you know how I do that chicken walk? I can do that chicken walk, so she wrote down chicken walk, and then I could do my arm, I mean she wrote down what she can do. So Anna, God bless her, put her in a chicken outfit, it was pink feathers, bikini, bikini, and she did a dance with the, with the boy dancers, and of course, who was the only one that received a Tony nomination, <laughs> Luba luba lisa was nominated and of course i didn't expect to get one but i thought luba for being a silly girl with a chicken walk and in a feathered bikini but she was a personality a real personality and and anna knew that anna didn't fight it she just did it but i worked with anna years later when we became really each other oh i should have worn the sweatshirt she gave me uh when she did another shot here with me and then we, we just became uh really really well acquainted with each other because we would appear at the same places as she got older and she kind of she kind of lost maybe a little earlier dimension she would see me at a theater thing here and she'd say I know you I know you and I said yeah Anna I said we worked you know we did the this, this and that and then she would she would say oh oh yeah you know but but she intimidated the bejesus Jesus out of me at first but then I was watching the other night Oliver, I don't know why i decided to watch oliver again and she was what she did in that movie i don't know how she did all of that i don't know she got a special academy award for that i remember and tommy panko was her assistant adorable guy adorable guy and mm-hmm. uh i i'm honored that i got to work with her i wish i could have done more Worked with her more mm-hmm. so what else so
0: I want to ask you about the, of course, the famous performance on The Ed Sullivan Show, which you were making.
1: <laughs> Let me tell you, Charles, there is a community of people, largely men, and uh, who have kept my career alive all these years by showing that clip everywhere. Everywhere, The minute one of those men discovers, and I'm sure there are women in there too, I mean young girls, there are women who are probably the next generation from me or two generations after me who say, oh my God, that was really something. But it's mostly the men. And my manager was one of those that just keep that living and keep me living and keep having me interviewed by people like you. I get so many Zoom requests and stuff. And it's the I had a ball. Now, I had been doing that show for eight times a week. I don't remember when we did it compared to when we we opened in December. So it must have been done after Christmas sometime, maybe in in maybe March. Because we didn't close until June. So it must have been somewhere in there. So I had done it a lot. I could do it in my sleep. And the choreography was the same, my blocking. I just my blocking was the same but of course it was live live yeah. television even though i did a lot of the talk shows that were live you know Merv griffin and johnny carson and all that stuff <clears throat> so all of a sudden they go and how he says karen morrow from Demoon iowa said <laughs> it's all the demone De from iowa here she is folks give her so when it started ah <sighs> I just went for it. I just went for it. And of course, the show bought me a dress, a beautiful dress that was just feathers, not feathers, but it was lighted, a light chiffon by Galanos. I remember Galanos at that point was a great, big, fabulous designer. And then they gave it to me, I could keep it. And it was wonderful, but when it came to the end, I couldn't take my moment i had a ball nobody had to walk out <laughs> right at the end and that but that was fine i mean i had done the thing, and he you know shared the applause which he should have done he was the star of the show and he
0: yeah.
1: acquiesced that i would do this and uh, that was very exciting and and since then i have emotionally psychologically Lived off of that, I might say emotionally. That and the um, uh, I'm Still Here that I did uh, in Follies out here. Those two big numbers. And then perhaps the Jerry Herman thing I did at the bowl. If music is no longer like those great big numbers at great big places with the biggest voice I had, but very little attention. It's the opposite of what I teach now is that you gotta make the words or you can't just yell. I mean, fortunately I had a, a sound that wasn't annoying. I don't think, maybe it was annoying to some people, but, but people always said, you know, there are belters and then, then you know, then there's a sound like you. So uh, so I am ever grateful to that group. And, and new ones, every, it keeps popping up online, like no one ever said, oh my God, I ever saw this before. I go, really? <laughs> never saw it. It's all over the place. Thank you so much. I'm always typing. Thank you. Thank you. And then today I got, I noticed a message from messenger. I just discovered messenger on my phone. Mm-hmm. A man who put together all these clips. It's just a messenger. I just had to keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and scrolling, and scrolling of my performances starting in Milwaukee at Melody Top doing stuff there and all the way up to, I don't know where. I mean, I just couldn't, I just, I couldn't scroll all of it. And I go, this is, I mean, there are, there are fans for everybody out there. There are fans. And a lot of us wouldn't have careers, especially since we're not doing anything live on stage now. We would be forgotten. I would have been forgotten years ago if it weren't for the, People and what they what they remember about the Broadway sound and the Broadway stage and they are just those kind of fans and I'm just uh, I'm in awe and eternally grateful eternally grateful so I have nothing but respect for those shows that I did and the memories of them so but you know I still don't have a recording I don't have a personal recording and I'm trying to put together some of the things I've already done. Oh. and put them on a, a disc and give them to my students. I would never sell them or anything like that. And in going through all my stuff, the only things I liked the way I sang were ballads. <laughs> I was much more personal in my ballads. All the rest of the up things were just, ah. ah, ah, ah. So I, I thought, oh, i got to find some uppies here somewhere that have some, some sort of artistry to them. But people like the belting things. So what can I say?
0: Yeah. I I'm sure everyone would want to hear an album of yours. I know I would.
1: Ah, that's nice. But it's just go on YouTube and you can find any one of these songs that I've done. So, no, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I would, I would send one to you, but just pray that I live long enough that I get this darn thing done. I have so many other things to do in the house here. I've already selected the the stuff. Now I have to get them to an engineer. And listen, as I said, I'm, I'm about as old as your great grandmother, maybe older. And I'm not, I'm not so swift with getting things done because I don't have, I don't have a, a seven-year-old to help me do these things. <laughs> I have to. I have to do these things on my own. So anyway, what else, my honey, my honey, honey, honey?
0: So I so, want to ask how you sort of created all these show-stopping numbers like that. And of course, later we'll talk about Baby Love's Miracle Show. And-
1: how did I create that? Well, somebody just sent me a live recording of that. Yeah, yesterday and I listened to it and I went so if it was live it, it went so fast. I just said it's a wonder. It's a wonder. I couldn't understand any of the words. It was so fast and it really it it didn't have it just it just was loud and fast and the audience of course applauded and applauded and applauded and applaud and, applauded and I thought that's for sheer endurance. I got the applause for sheer endurance but creating that you know I wasn't the original of that celeste home in michigan at the university did that and then she she wanted that song broken up into two pieces so that she could appear in the first act because the baby love doesn't come out of the second act she didn't like that disappearing in the second act so they tried and and uh so they then got rid of her and called me fortunately i was between things but that 1972, I was between things. I wasn't under contract to anybody. And they brought me in and I had two weeks. Now, they had already been through all this. So, I mean, everybody was friendly, but they they had already formed their alliances and knew what they were doing. And I was a wreck. And Ellis Rabb, who was so wonderful, I, I just had to memorize everything. That was my thing. I had to memorize everything. I had to mem- memorize the, maybe they changed the blocking. And the rest of the people were not too happy with all of that. So the only thing I could do was just sing it and nuances, because it went so fast. The only thing I could really sing with any kind of feeling at all was share my joy and love. And when I heard it live, I went, oh, Karen, you knew what to do with that. Yes, you did, you used the words and stuff. But I was having trouble, so I told Ellis Rab, the director, like four days or maybe the week before, we had we were going to open I said, you know, I said, I, I I have a feeling I'm going to break down at some point between now and opening. I said, I, I know I'm going to have some sort of a breakdown. I said, so just let me do it and and I'll get over it. I said, because right now I'm just I'm so pent up with all this stuff. And he said, all right, Miss Morrow, loved him. Ma loved him. So the night before. It was our tech our tech rehearsal wasn't even the dress yet it was the tech i got i got i don't know if it was before the song or in the middle of the song or at the end of the song i just went to my knees and i said i said oh my god i just didn't know i just somebody's being beeped here i just didn't know what to do and i hear from the back of the theater miss morrow is this it And I said, yes, I break down. Just hang in there with me. So I break down, break down, break down, break down. And then that was it. Then that was it. But so I finally said to him, I said, I don't know what to do. I said, I really don't know what to do with this. Because I come in, I'm shot out of a cannon. I said, I'm just not good enough to know what to do with this. It's so fast. It was on stage. The whole sequence was 20 minutes. My part was 12, and then it went on with the chorus or with the others. And he said, Hmm, think Halloween. I went, Think Halloween? Okay, thank you, Alice, thank you. So, of course, I came on stage like, like a, a ghost or which, Hey, JB Troubles. Oh, God. I thought, Think Halloween. What should I do? Well, of course we didn't do well, but I went over, I went over with them to record in Germany cause had never been to Europe. And I said, can I come over there with you? Cause they recorded the score there and uh, they said, yeah, sure. So I went over there and recorded it there. And I think it felt they slowed it down a little bit and I could really kind of play with it, but it would have been much better if the personality had sung it. I'm thinking, if Dorothy Loudon had done it, it would have been so interesting. <laughs> it wouldn't have sounded like a belter, but it would have been really interesting. I wasn't interesting at all. Just this big singer. So it was you know, too bad, too bad. But hey, I get letters from the people who clean their house listening to this, who do all sorts of things, raking the leaves listening to it. My manager and all his friends in, in Connecticut would go out on their front porch and they'd play it really loud so they could all, you listen to it, I go, what is this? Oh my God. That's just, it's a miracle. So that was, but Barbara, you know, again, they, everybody had their own thoughts about this. It It wasn't a tightly knit, it was a tightly knit group before I came in because they all were complaining and they had each other to complain to, and they all knew the background. I didn't. I just came in there, and they were happy to see me as opposed to much bigger, but I certainly didn't bring any new drama or any new things. I remember one of them, I won't say who, but one of the performers would never look me in the eye. I'd have a conversation with that performer, and the eyes always went to the side, and then that person would say something and look right at me, and then I'd answer, and the eyes would look to the side, and I thought, what is this? I had never worked with quirky people. Yeah. Thought, oh, yeah, people are quirky. So it was, listen, but then of course I went on to something else and forgot about that. So, hey, listen, <laughs> on to the next.
0: So I'd also so, love to know about Clay Bridgardson and Kenward Elmsley, who of course were the writers. Yeah.
1: Oh, God. They were dream boats just for, well, I went with them to Europe. So, you know, to Germany to record this album. And then the three of us went out. I, I remember we, we got there and Jonathan Tunick went with us too, in case anything had to be changed in the orchestrations. He became the conductor. So it was the four of us. Was that four? <laughs> One, two, three, four. Yeah. And I knew that the first night we were going to be there, we were going to have to eat in the hotel. But it was our Thanksgiving. We were going to be at the Thanksgiving. Night. So beforehand, I went and I bought a lot of like cho- uh, six chocolate turkeys. And so I got down to the table, and each one had a chocolate turkey. And so we always laughed. And then Klebe and and Kenward and I went to the opera in in Cologne, Cologne, and we laughed so hard through the whole thing because it was Cenerentola, and the woman who was playing Cinderella, when she sang, looked just like Imogene Coca from the Sid Caesar show. She sang out of the side of her mouth. Well. Oh my gosh. We had so many. Then we went to the cathedral. to see. We went to the cathedral for mass to hear the, to hear the choir. And then afterwards I did a recording of um, Kenward's music called the Forgotten Kenward El- music or the, um, and they were just, he was a poet, you know, he was not married, but his partner was, um, it's a lazy afternoon, who wrote the lyrics to that. The, okay. Anyway, he was his partner, so he was he was a very poetic lyricist. And uh, the songs that we did were, I'm trying to think who wrote the music to some of them, but they were interesting, but not any, no toe tappers. Then the it, Bergmans, the Bergmans really got mad at me. I did a concert with the Bergmans once, with wow. Alan, And when I got to the, to the song, Lazy Afternoon, I said, this is, a, this is a song that I absolutely, the lyrics are wonderful. I I teach my students, that these are called luscious lyrics, and you have to use them. Then I sang the song, and then that was it. And we went off for the intermission, and, and, uh, and Marilyn Bergman said, and who wrote those lyrics, Karen? She said, you didn't tell them who wrote the lyrics. And of course, I'm talking to world famous lyricists right in front of me, the, the Bergmans. So so that Kenward, I mean, he was, we, we would go to lunch or something. He was a very, he was very tall. He was like six foot five or four. And he, he was wealthy. He was a grandson of the Pulitzer, oh. of, of whatever. Uh, a great-grandson, maybe great-grandson. And he lived in the East Village where all the intellectual wealthy people, <laughs> creators lived. And he had just wonderful things in his house. I went there for lunch one day. Somebody cooked us lunch.
0: Um, looked it up. Is it John Latouche?
1: John Latouche well, I had, I knew it was three syllables. Thank you. I knew you would find out. Thank you so much. There. Is that okay people? Now you know. My 13-year-old friend <laughs> came up with the answer. Thank you, honey. Oh, I can sleep better now. So that's but we didn't keep we didn't keep in touch much after that uh, too bad. I know all they're all going on me. I mean this they're all disappearing. I thought oh my god. People from my from my group. Although the people that I meet on my, I still go back my high school classmates. We Zoom. They're all just, oh yeah, hey, whoa, whoa, and everyone else. I go, okay, I guess we're okay so far, so good. You know, so if Leroy Reams ever goes, then I have to go with him because he's (laughs) Mister and Judy K. Those people to me are. The backbones of Broadway—they just, you know, close to my era, especially Leroy. Yeah, we work together. <clears throat> they just keep going and going and work and work and going and going and work and appear and appear and appear and and Donna McKechnie, who's younger, but I mean, they just keep going. Anita Gillette—they just keep going, and I just mm-hmm. I admire them so. In the meantime, I'm just I just want to have my diet coke and then maybe go to the store and teach mm-hmm. my glasses. So, but I'm I am, I'm worried about that that error leaving completely cuz it's it's uh it's nice when people like you ask about things from from the past to know that we are not forgotten i mean and i'm sure that they get requests too from you know from people like you and is it mary jane Ann houdini mary jane oh yes mary jane houdina i remember her and i can't remember why but we must have worked together i just remember who can oh, forget I'm- her name houdina yeah. just yeah houdini she was in
0: she was in on solomon with you
1: oh it's right <laughs> oh my god oh my god you really are something thank you <laughs> yeah well, she might have been the assistant choreographer was that the, no no donnie McHale was the choreographer and i don't know who the assistant was yeah that was oh, show oi oi what a show that was i can't begin to tell you it was talk about being miscast well who was i talking to the other day uh the part my part was written for who was marnie nixon Uh her husband wrote the score and marnie nixon and for alfred drake it was written for the two of them so of course who got the roles me and dick Sean, a comedian. So there we were. (laughs) And I had to have a black wig. And I remember the score was written for a soprano, like Marnie, who was wonderful. And of course, so was Alfred Drake. But he might have been too old, I think. But anyway, uh, so I I was in trouble. I thought, I can't sing up there. I mean, I can, but it's not going to sound like I won't be me called Keith Davis, who was at that point a very popular voice teacher who was working with people on Broadway and was getting them all prepared. He was the big guy. So I called the big guy and I said, this is Karen Maui. He said, yes, when do you want to come? So that's the first time I ever took a voice lesson. And he, you know, gave me confidence and told me that I was just fine. I didn't need to study, but I went, I thought, thought, but I can't. So they changed the key. They changed the keys for me. And, uh, Oh, I remember Salome Jens and I? We had the same. We eventually had the same manager, and she would go to Keith because she never sang. She was just this wonderful actress, and she. I go to before her last night. would hear her go, oh, oh, and I go, oh my god, oh my god, poor thing. But she had to sing a little bit of something. So, uh, but it was. I became friendly with the Israelis who came. Because I loved, I loved the drum beats. Well, however they were playing those drums, I forgot what kind of drums you call them, but they really got under my skin, and they still do. I go crazy if I go to a grocery store and the drums are are dominant, in you know whatever we have it's rock stuff. I'm I'm start dancing down the aisle. Oh, ba 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 da ba 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 da ba. I get my body going. I thought, well, this helps some. I mean, I'm not really dancing, but I thought, isn't that interesting? Drums really, really get to my gut, and those really. I really love that stuff. Yeah. So, what else?
0: Oh, um, about I'm um, Solomon. I want to ask you about-
1: I was gonna say, we were talking about Mary Jane, Mary Jane Houdina, and then, uh, I don't even remember who else was in it besides Nick Sean and he and I got into a real, into a real, we wouldn't talk to each other.
0: Oh.
1: And, which I've never been like that. And finally, we, get, we got into a, the same elevator together, and I said, well, I guess we better talk to each other, would yes? I don't know, he didn't like what I was doing, and I didn't like what he was doing. So, go ahead, go on.
0: Oh, I want to ask you about um Michael Benthal, Um, I'm um, Solomon, who was the director. Michael Benthal, Oh,
1: I'm glad you remembered that. He was relieved of his duties, was he not? I'm going. You know more about um, him. He was. Mm, Michael Benthall. Oh, I hate to speak ill of the dead, but he had a very big drinking problem. Oh, and he was really a fish out of water doing doing that. I mean, he was British, and he had quite a wonderful career. I mean, he was he was a, a critic's delight uh, in England, I guess. So they thought he would be good because this was an international thing with Israelis coming over from Israel. And, and I guess it was too much for him because he would really be non-communicative when he would come in. And I don't know who took over. I don't know if they, if they fired him or if we went to opening night. I remember Donnie McHale, who was mostly concerned with the dancers and was the Israeli dancers. He was trying to come up with something that seemed authentic for them. And of course, there were there were Asian Asian Americans? No, there were Middle Easterners and there were black uh, people in the in the chorus. And so I think he was trying to come up with a blend of all of that. So I didn't, I didn't I didn't work with him. I mean, whenever I sang, I was by myself one song I don't know when I sang it while I was squatting on the stage because I did that once during rehearsal I was squatting because I had to stand there for so long but I had boots on that had a little bit of a heel so it was really comfortable then when it came time to do the show I, there were no heels I was in sandals and then to to suddenly be and Eric Siegel who wrote Sing Muse they brought him in I mean he had written the script called In Someone Else's Sandals and then they changed it and I remember we tried it out in at, in New Haven when he was at Yale.
0: And that was our
1: first kind of reunion since Sing Muse. And he was not happy with everything. Yeah. And I think he made some changes, but they weren't happy. I don't know, it was just a mess. It was a mess. I don't know how long we lasted. It was in April and I uh, I don't know. It was not a, it was, I I remember, moments. I can picture moments and people quitting. A couple of the, the the movie actors from a lot of from Julius Caesar who had done the film Julius Caesar and he was going to play and, and he quit and I don't We were dying on the vine.
0: Yeah. So I also want to ask you about doing Um, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman at the Muni. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You were really something, we're only up to when I was 25. We've got to go all the way up to 84. Uh, well, that was funny, because Charles Nelson Reilly, who was my dearest friend, my dearest friend, dearest male friend, uh, we that's when we got really close. He had, he had told me when I was in Sing Muse, he came backstage afterwards because he knew Bobby Dentino, who was the, the boy who played Paris. And he came to my room, and I had heard of Charles Nelson Reilly. And he stood in my doorway and he was smoking a pipe. And he said, you are an artist. And I had never been called an artist. I I, I didn't know what to say. Well, thank you. And then later on, when we both found out that we were gonna do, I think I had then kind of reacquainted myself with him. But then when we did that, he played for Professor Sedgwick, of course. And his costume was uh, a dark wool suit with a dark vest. And dark, dark, gray, gray, dark, black, dark, dark, dark. And I was playing Sydney, you know the one who was haircuts simply terrible. So I had to be the life of the party. Now we're gonna are fourteen thousand people in the audience, and and from the tenth row you can't back you can't see anything. So I decided that we went for costume fitting. Charles and I went together to Brooks Brothers, Brooks Brothers, Brooks Eves, Eves, and. I tried on, I picked a blue vinyl dress, miniskirt that had a a white top, all vinyl, red earrings that lit up and white go-go boots. That was my first entrance (laughs) and I came out and I said, how do you like this? And then he came out with the gray suit, the gray, the gray. Well, we were hysterical. He said, uh, he said, my God, and I said, they ain't gonna see me past the tenth row. I gotta, I gotta make sure they see me when I come on stage. So, oh God, he brought his dog with him. Oh my God, Rose was the dog's name. And we got not adjoining hotel rooms, but we were all in the same hotel. But we decided to go by train to St. Louis from New York because of Rose, the dog. So we each got a compartment. We were joining compartments, but we didn't. I mean, maybe we opened up during the day so that Rose would have some place to move around. And every time he came to a stop, he'd have to get off the train and let Rose off so she could <laughs> have a squirt someplace. <laughs> oh my God! Oh my God! And then at the end, at the end of the show, unless this, but this is before they before they barred wow. helicopters flying over the theater during oh. show. So you know, the helicopter comes down and picks up Professor Sedgwick and takes him up into the sky or something. And, of course, we had the original Superman, whatever the, his name was. I can't remember. But he kept trying to direct the show like like it was, like we did it on Broadway. We didn't do it that way on Broadway. And Charles would say, this isn't the man who came to Derek. Charles would say, this isn't Shakespeare. He said, we're, we're doing the best we can. It's So then Charles... Charles, at the end, we'd, we'd hear the dum 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 of the helicopter, and it would come down, and a ladder would come down. A ladder would come down from the helicopter, and Charles, who probably had never climbed more than, than a couple of steps to get something off the top shelf in his life, had to climb up that ladder and be taken, flown away, but they didn't fly very far, probably just over the set, so that they could... Again, I don't remember, so that they could then lower it so that he could get off and not fall off. He was terrified, absolutely terrified. And, of course, we were terrified for him. But uh, one day they did. We, we all wanted to fly. And so one day the uh, fly by Foy, Foy. Oh. Okay. By Foy. And they could, because it was a big crane. That's how, how Bob came in as Superman. And the, and um so one day we went out there to the park, and each one of us got laced up and got to fly out. That was when we were in Kansas City. It was a it was a smaller park, but that's when we were in Kansas City and you know fly back again. And I oh my God, we were all just thrilled, scared, and thrilled. And it was always an adventure. All Summer Stock was always an adventure. I wouldn't give up one of those days for anything. I would take them any day over Broadway. <laughs> truly, truly, there was nothing. The only thing that at stake was safety, getting laughs, getting applause, and making sure that people got their money's worth. That was the only thing that was at stake. Then we would move on to some other place. The producers always, usually picked great shows and and good actors who could do the job, whether they were right or not. But you know, so but that was great fun.
0: Okay, but and but before we break between parts, I want to ask you about one more thing, which is, sure. um, since you mentioned it earlier, the shows you've done with Nancy Dussault.
1: Yeah, so, yeah. my dear, dear friend, Nancy. Uh, yeah, we're still best friends. We met, I don't know what show she was doing. We, we met at, I think it was, we're, we're trying to decide where it was, the Q Awards party of the uh, Q Awards of the year. That was Q Magazine in New York. Oh. And I would say roughly about 1964, I was invited because I was doing, either I had a ball or something, and Nancy was doing either Do-Re-Mi or Bajur at that time. And I had seen her perform. When I first got to New York, I saw her perform in Do-Re-Mi and I just said, why am I in New York? This is the most perfect singer in the world. She's beautiful, she's adorable, she's a good actress. She sings, she could do anything. I looked at my agent. From the Morris office who took me there and I went, what am I going to do? So I was a big fan. And during this party at the whatever hotel it was, it was a big ballroom. I and my date went into one of the side ballrooms just to get away from the crowd or something. And she, she and her husband came in the same ballroom. And we looked at each other and I went, hi i'm karen and she knew who i was and then, i'm nancy and jim okay this is kevin and we started talking then now i think this is the time i know that there was one time when we were on uh, in a ballroom away from the crowd and judy garland came in with somebody and she was sobbing and, and she was hysterical about something and of course nancy and, I, and the four of us just you know stood with our eyes as big as dollars and, and listening to this, she was very upset about something. And then when she left, we went, well, wasn't that interesting. But then we were booked, like immediately after that, to do a summer stock show together, to do Good News together in St. Louis with Peter Palmer. And so, and another another fella, R.G. Brown, who was, who was a, a comedian from the, the off-Broadway world. And the St. Louis Cardinals. They were the star of the show. <laughs> they played the football players on uh on the uh in the show. Our names were below the title. And Peter Palmer. And we had scenes together. She and RG Brown and I had scenes together, so we'd rehearse in her room or my room at the hotel. And we got to laughing so hard. But we were inventing things to do with the three of us on stage. Just different things to go, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> We thought we were so funny, and of course, the audience didn't know what we were doing. But we became very close, and that was it. We became so close. Uh, we, were, we saw one another like three times a week. Nancy's husband was working during the day, so we would go out to lunch and do stuff. Then Nancy came out here to audition, I think, for stuff, And she was staying with me, and I got a phone call uh wanted to know if i wanted to do a series at town hall or to do an episode at at town hall in new york called age of elegance we would like you to do that would you be available and i said well yes and they said we also are going to call nancy do because we think that would be good that would be a good combination i said ah she just happens to be right here (laughs) she's staying with me now so Nancy got on the phone, and then she went, yeah, of course. So we were booked. And that put us together. And we worked really hard and came up with a, we found wonderful musicians that we knew. And we came up with a sensational show. And our two voices at that time were so perfectly blended that the comp, we complimented each other in such a way. And we were both funny and, and had a good time. There was nothing stodgy about us. And we were very easy with the audience. And then that, that then led to all the bookings after another another two bookings at Town Hall. And then we did our own TV special, which we got our Emmy for. And then we did, uh, then we even opened a network, oh. CBS Cable. And we did three shows for CBS Cable, as did a whole bunch of other people do things for CBS Cable. And then CBS Cable went belly up. I said, I closed everything from an off-Broadway show to a network, a cable network. I get the prize. And so Nancy and I've been—we've done things together since, but people keep trying to get us back together. We've go, oh, no, it's—we can't do that. It's—it's it's too many memories of, of what was good, and 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 also the the times that I, I, I get a little. Let's see, uh, because Nancy was far more famous than I. She was doing, and 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 I I felt that I kind of kind of couldn't match her. I mean, our voices were just fine match, but you know, but she was she was the one that they really pursued uh, for publicity and stuff like that, and uh, and I thought, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I love that they loved her and loved us, but of course, I was I didn't feel all that great about it. So, but but again, we, we got older. I mean, we the last time we sang together was probably about ten years ago. Coming, who else are you going to interview? Who else do you have to talk to?
0: Oh, um, well, I'm just about to talk to soon hopefully um cheetah rivera which
1: is a cheetah cheetah and nancy and i were going to do a show at carnegie hall together oh we were going to do that together because here i was the big tall big blondie and there was nancy the little redhead and cheetah the, the the fire fire brand in the middle and we just thought that would be great just great. we had meetings and everything about that and uh, well Cheetah will probably tell you she wanted Fred Ebb and, uh, you know, to write it and everything. And we thought, well, could we have maybe somebody who was not your writer <laughs> do it? And we, we talked a lot about it. And then and then I got a contract on TV and then Nancy did, so it dispersed, but Cheetah, Yeah, we were very good friends out here. I just haven't talked to her in so long, <clears throat> but please give her my love. <clears throat> please tell her that I, I, I mean, I'm so aware of how, wonderful and how wonderful her life has gone so, okay okay so yeah okay this is great this is great okay. you know, how long have i done this for two hours i think so i think so charles well you're wonderful oh, you've really you. so much homework on this this is this is outstanding of course as i've said people love to talk about themselves <laughs> at least i do so and i had coffee I must never do that. Next time it's going to be diet. No, next time it'll be tea. And that's where
0: I ended part one of my interview with Karen Morrow. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And remember to come back next time for part two. Thanks for tuning in.